Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. Psalm 89 is going to be our psalm to read today. We're going to go ahead and do the teaching first again today, and then we'll break into maybe one group, two groups. And hey, how's it going? pray and uh, answer some questions at the end. Psalm 89 is a little bit longer, but I, I chose it because it has to do with God's covenant faithfulness, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, so Psalm 89, verse 1, says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn by or to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne for all generations. Selah. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, that God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness always sur- also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like the one who was slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains. You have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For your shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established. My arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him. Nor the sons of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And my name, and in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness will keep him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod 
and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful, Selah. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broke down all his walls, and you have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turn back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in the battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth and covered him with shame, Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath be like fire? Remember what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants. How I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. And amen. That is the word of the Lord. Real quick, before we get into the study on God's covenant with man, I wanted just to share one more thing. Uh, it, it, I mentioned this last week um, when I, I was talking about uh, our, our friend Joe and, and how uh, studying these doctrines has been affecting him in the hard time that he's in. And I just want to encourage us to, to really press into these things, to, to really dive into the Word and and, and use this time as, as kind of a training to prepare us because there is a persecution coming. It, it, it really is. It's escalating. This world's becoming more and more hostile to Christians every day. I mean, I was just uh, reading about this guy who's a pastor, a preacher up in Washington, and he was at a state park sitting there reading the Bible on a, on a park bench all by himself, minding his own business. Uh, and there was a, a gay pride parade going on, and men were actually marching around naked in front of kids and stuff like that uh, in the middle of this park, and the police came, ten cops showed up and arrested the guy sitting there reading his Bible by himself at the park because he made these other people feel uncomfortable. It's just crazy, and that's in a state where, you know, everything in Washington so, you know, there you've got, you know, homelessness like crazy. You've got theft like crazy, drug use like <laughs> Just problem after problem after problem. But the state wanted to send ten cops to arrest a guy reading the Bible on a park bench because he was making other people feel uncomfortable. That, that's what it's coming to. And it's not just going to be in the world. It's going to be in the church as well. 
churches, denominations are turning that way. I was kicked out of Bible groups on Facebook last week because I was actually posting Bible verses in theology. They're like, no, 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 you're not allowed to talk theology. You're not allowed to talk about sin. You're not allowed to actually post what the Bible says. You can only post pictures of Bibles on here. <laughs> I'm like, what in the world? Like, and they're like, yeah, this is just like a, uh, what do they say? It's for people that collect Bibles as hobbies. And I'm like, you know, anybody that calls the Bible a hobby, I don't want to be a part of that group. <laughs> you know, was my thing. But, but all that to say that, that, that this hostility towards us who hold a biblical worldview is, is growing. The animosity is getting greater. And, and it's going to pick up faster and faster. And, and it's going to hit us, each one of us. It's going to hit us in a different way at different times. And we need to be ready. But the one way to be ready is to be grounded in God's word. Uh, you know, uh, in, in Ephesians, right? If, uh, the first three chapters are all about theology who God is, all the riches we have in Christ. And then we have three chapters about how to practically live that out. And then at the end of it, it says, having done all to stand, stand firm. And then it talks about putting on your armor. Right? And, and so the idea is, is this. Before we can go into battle, we, we need to train ourselves. Right? We need to, to study our theology. We need to start living it out, walking it out. And then we'll be prepared to stand and to fight in that battle. And then when this comes our way, we won't be crushed by it like other people will. So I just encourage you guys to, if you don't have a daily habit of reading your Bible, I mean, that's first and foremost. Do that. That's going to do more than anything for you. But, uh, again, I'm just so thankful you're here because I really feel that these truths that we're studying are going to make all the difference in the world uh, when these hard times come our way. Amen. So tonight's topic is God's covenant with man. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump into that. God, uh, I just pray right now that uh, you bless us tonight, that you speak to us, Lord, that you uh, just take ownership of this time, and you do with it what you will. I've prepared. I have something I think you want me to share, Lord, but I give you the freedom to to say whatever you want, Lord, and, and help me to see and to be sensitive to the moving of your spirit, Lord, and uh, and, and I pray that your your truth, that your uh, your prophetic word would be spoken tonight, Lord. I pray it would encourage us, it would edify us, it would comfort us, Lord, that we would just leave here more on fire for you and ready to represent you in a world that, that hates you but needs you, Lord. And, and I pray that you give us grace to do that. You said when your spirit comes upon us, you will make us your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world, Lord. And I pray that you would do that. I pray our life would be a, a witness, a testimony to the fact that, that Jesus lives inside of us. But that starts with, 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 with the movement of your spirit and, and your word. You said your word is truth, sanctified in the truth, Lord. And I pray that that's what would happen tonight. I pray you would be our teacher, that you would lead us into all truth, all righteousness, Lord. And, you would just have your way in us. So we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we found ourselves in the seventh of such messages. Last week we talked about the fall of man and of sin. And this week we're going to talk about God's covenant with man. How he's going to restore man from that fallenness. And in our world today, we see covenants 
in, in many places. Can anyone here think of a place that we see covenants or the idea of a covenant in our culture today? Yeah, Mark? Marriage is a, a great example of a covenant, right? A co- marriage, two people, a, a man and a woman, they make a, a covenant before family, before friends, before a, a minister, before the state, ultimately before God, you know, uh, promising to love, cherish, and care for each other until death do them part, right? That, that is exactly what a covenant is. Uh, marriage is a great example of a covenant in our culture today. Aaron, did you have something else there? Adoption. Yeah, there's a, a, a covenant that goes with adoption, right? When you adopt a child, you are signing legal paperwork to, to care for that. They're putting stipulations, things you have to do to adopt that child. And, um, and then you have rights and privileges of being that child's guardian. Anybody else think of any other covenants that we have in our culture today? Another one might be business. There's all kinds of covenants that happen in the, the business realm. Uh, each one of you guys have probably undergone some type of covenant with your employer. Right? When you signed on to work there, they gave stipulations saying, I want you to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to pay you this much for it. And, and you said, okay, I'll do that. And you signed it. And there's a contract. There's a covenant between the two of you saying, I will do this. And and if you do this faithfully, then I will reward you with this. And then it goes on to, to vendors and, uh, and and buyers as well, right? Where the vendor has a, a contract with buyers. You know, even uh, I have um, what's it called? The, the, the Wi-Fi uh, spectrum Wi-Fi, and I had to sign a, a, a covenant, a contract with them to be provided with their service. Uh, in, in, in the business world, there's, there's contractors and subcontractors and all kinds of things like that that make covenants with each other. So this idea of covenant isn't something that should be super foreign to our thinking. We have them all over in our culture today. Erdman's Bible Dictionary defines a covenant as this, an agreement between two or more parties outlining mutual rights and responsibilities, an agreement between two or more parties outlining mutual rights and responsibilities. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible takes it a little bit further. They get uh, a little bit more detailed with their definition. They say, a covenant is an arrangement between two parties involving mutual obligations, especially the arrangement that established the relationship between God and as his people, expressed in grace first with Israel and then with the church, through that covenant, God has conveyed to humanity the meaning of human life and salvation. Covenant is one of the central themes of the Bible, where some covenants are between human beings and others between God and human beings. Bruce Shelley, who's a a pastor, he wrote this. I thought this was pretty good. He said, in modern times, we define a host of relations by contracts. These usually for goods or services and for hard cash. The contract, formal or informal, helps to specify failure in these relationships. The Lord did not establish a contract with Israel or with the church. He created a covenant. There's a difference. 
contracts are broken when one of the parties fails to keep his promise. If, let's say, a, a patient fails to keep an appointment with a doctor, the doctor's not obligated to call the house to inquire, where are you, why didn't you show up for your appointment? He simply goes on to his next patient, and his appointment secretary takes note of the patient who failed to keep his appointment. The patient may find it harder the next time to see the doctor. He broke an informal contract. According to the Bible, however, the Lord asks, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she still has born? You may think, wow, that would never happen, but that implies that it might happen. Though she may forget, I will not forget you, Isaiah 49.15 says. The Bible indicates the covenant is more like the ties of a parent to her child than it is to a doctor's appointment. If a child fails to show up for dinner, the parent's obligation, unlike the doctor's, isn't canceled. The parent finds out where the child is and makes sure he's cared for. One of the members' failure does not destroy the relationship. A covenant puts no conditions on faithfulness. It is the unconditional commitment to love and to serve. I like that. And, and that's what God's covenants are. They're unconditional. He's saying, hey, I'm in this covenant with you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to serve you no matter what. These covenants in the Bible, uh, we, we see covenants all throughout the Bible, and they take many different forms. Uh, for instance, there's, there's covenants made between friends. Uh, friends can make a covenant. We see this with Jonathan and David. Their deep brotherly love for one another was actually called a covenant. In 1 Samuel 18.3, it says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Uh, in the Bible, we also see marriage pictured as a covenant. In fact, God uses uh, the covenant of marriage as a picture of his covenantal relationship with his people. When Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh and worshipped idols, God considered it adultery. The prophet Hosea dramatized this by, by going and uh, God telling him to go and, and marry a prostitute. He went and married Gomer, and Gomer would be unfaithful to him, and no matter how unfaithful Gomer was to him, his love and affection was set on Gomer, and he would continually take her back because he loved her and had a covenant with her, and it was a picture of God's covenant faithfulness with Israel. It's also possible to make a covenant with yourself. Right? That seems kind of weird. I'm going to make a covenant with myself. Well, it's really not if you think about New Year's resolutions. If you think about it, a New Year's resolution is essentially a covenant that we make with ourselves. We may not be very faithful at carrying out those covenants, but that's essentially what it is. Job made a covenant with his eye. In Job 31, verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look or gaze at a virgin? Job's covenant was, I'm not going to look at any other woman but my wife because I do not want to fall into temptation. I don't want to fall into lust. He had a covenant with himself. There were also covenants that took national and international character. When, when David became king, the elders of Israel, they gathered together at Hebron, and they made a covenant with him. 
Second Samuel 5.3 says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. Solomon, when he takes over the kingdom, he's going to make a covenant with Hiram, the king of Tyre. In 1 Kings 5.12, it says, The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. So oftentimes we're going to see covenants between nations where, hey, this covenant, hey, we'll pay you tribute, you protect us. You know, we'll import goods for you for this amount of money, things like that. These were covenants made between nations. But we also see, and this is where the focus of our study tonight is going to be, is the covenants that God makes with his people, with his with the people that he's called to himself, with his holy people. And we see many of these covenants throughout the Bible. There's the Noahic covenant. God made a covenant with Noah even before the flood that his blessing would flow through Noah's family in Genesis 6-5. He said, I'm not going to kill your family like I am the rest of the earth. I'm not going to destroy your lineage and the deluge. But Noah had a responsibility in this covenant. His responsibility was to build the ark. And then after the flood, Noah made an altar as a sign of God's covenant faithfulness with his family for preserving his family through the flood, just like God said he would. And then God extended this covenant, this Noahic covenant, to, to all the peoples through the world, saying, I will not flood the world like I did. I, I will not judge the world with a flood like I did in the days of Noah. And he gave the rainbow as a sign of that covenant. You know, I, I love walking up to people in the street that have like all the rainbow stuff on and that. And be like, isn't that great? I, mean, I love the rainbow too. It's such a picture of God's faithfulness and God's love to not judge us. Don't you just love that? I mean, probably the only way you're alive is because of that rainbow. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> you know, and, uh, I, I think it's funnier than they do, but um, but yeah, you know that that's what the rainbow is a symbol of is God's covenant faithfulness to not judge the world like He did with Noah. And then there was the covenant of Abraham. God appeared to Abraham over and over again, and over those times, his appearance says He made a covenant with Abraham, promising him descendants, promising him a land. The sign of this was the stars and the sand. As many stars as you could count, as many as sand as there is on the beach, that's how many descendants you're going to have. He was going to have a people. And then there was going to be a land for the nation. And, and in fact, we, we look at what the land that God promised Abraham, and Israel never fully attained to that land. That's how we know that the millennial kingdom is still yet to come. When Christ is going to come and he's going to reign from Jerusalem and there's going to be a reestablished Israel and they're going to fulfill that land requirement that was promised by the Lord and the covenant that he gave Abraham. Because God will be faithful with his covenants. And then he made a covenant on Sinai. God had just rescued the children of Israel from Egypt and he brought them to Sinai where he entered a covenant with them. He promised that they would be a special people, people to him. They would be a nation of priests and kings. They would be holy. They would belong to him. 
but they needed to follow certain stipulations that were given in the law. This covenant would be renewed before entering into the the promised land. That's, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy literally means second giving of the law. And they, before they went into the promised land, they rehearsed the law. They rehearsed the, the acts of God, the faithfulness of God through the 40 years of wandering. And then they went up between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and pronounced the law, the blessings and the curses. If they obeyed the law, they'd be blessed. If they didn't, they would be cursed. And then God entered a covenant with David. The Davidic covenant promised that there would be a descendant of David on the king on the throne forever. That, that, that God would have a forever kingdom with Israel, and one of David's descendants would be ruling over it. Lastly, there's the new covenant. At the very lowest point of Israel's history, they're in exile because of their faithlessness to God. They're living in Babylon. And God gives the new covenant where he promised the prophet Jeremiah. And he said that this covenant would be different because God would write his laws on people's hearts and not on tablets of stone. This meant that God would work in and through them in a way that enabled them to keep the covenant and to never be exiled again. And then Jesus, during the Last Supper, he initiates this covenant. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to see all of these covenants, from the Noahic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant to the Davidic covenant to the, the New Covenant. They're really just further revelation of the covenant of grace. They're a building upon of the covenant of grace. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for your first fill and fill in gracious, all of God's covenants are gracious acts of condescension. You see, we need to see that whenever God enters a covenant with people, it's an act of grace. God isn't required to enter any such agreements. He owes man nothing. But he chooses to condescend himself and to enter these agreements with man. Because of this, we must also realize that God's covenants, covenants are sovereignly disposed. You know, nowhere in the Bible do I find man and God bargaining over a covenant. Right? It's not like someone buying a car and haggling over the details or being hired for a new job, negotiating better pay. No, God's the sovereign. God stipulates. He ordains the details of the covenant, and it's our duty as his creatures to be faithful in obeying these covenants. But it's a pure act of grace that he condescends himself down and gives us a covenant to begin with. And he reveals his covenants in an act of condescension. That's your next feeling, condescension. God reveals his covenants in a manner of condescension. We just talked about the fact that God enters any type of covenant with creatures is a pure act of grace. 
But even the manner in which he forms these covenants is a matter of condescension. And you're like, what do you mean? Like, makes no sense. Well, this is what I mean. God could have demanded his creatures follow his rules in whatever manner he wanted. He, he could have chosen however he wanted to dispense these covenant regulations that he had for his people. But he chose the ancient Near East standard of covenant to make with his people so they'd be able to understand it. He took the customs that they already used in the ancient Near East and used that to speak to his people and to give them his covenants. In 1950, uh, a researcher by the name of George Mendelhall took biblical scholars by storm. He published a book called Law and Covenant in the Ancient Near East. And in this book, he looked at treaties entered into by Hittite kings and their vassals. This work concluded that the format, legal structure, and framework of these treaties was not unique to the Hittites, but it was common to treaties throughout the ancient Near East, including Israel. All the people in the East formed their covenants in the same way. And these covenants had specific parts to them. The first part was the preamble. The preamble was the first part of a treaty in which uh, identified the suzerain, or the overlord, the one who's making the covenant, with the vassal, the one he's making the covenant with. Hittite treaties were often called suzerain treaties because they were initiated by the dominant party, the king, the suzerain. It started something like this. I, Hammurabi, king of the Hittites, the one who reigns supreme over all the vassals in this realm. In other words, the, the king would establish his authority. That's how the covenant would start. And these Israelite treaties, these covenants, were similar. In Exodus 20, verse 2, the Ten Commandments starts this way. I am the Lord your God. Right? God stipulated, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one initiating this covenant. This is who I am. Yahweh is the sovereign. The children of Israel weren't entering a covenant with Mother Nature, but with Yahweh, the supreme ruler of the universe. And it's important to note that they weren't entering into a legal relationship, not defined by abstract rules and regulations, but also a personal relationship with a lawgiver. This isn't rule by law, but rule by God, who's personal. He creates persons and he gives his law to define our relationships with him and with each other. And these laws are found in this covenant. So the, the first part of the covenant was the preamble, where the author of the covenant is distinguishing who he is as the sovereign. The second part of the suzerain treaty was the historical prologue. In this part, the king briefly summarized the history of his relationship with the vassals. So for the Hittites, it was I, Hammurabi, king of the Hittites, and king who defended your borders from the invasion of the Amalekites. I'm the king who filled your coffers with surpluses of grain. I'm the king who shared treasuries with you in times of famine. In other words, the suzerain, the, the king, would remind the vassals of his track record. He would tell them all the good things that he had performed for him in the past, reasons that they could trust him, reasons that they should obey him and follow him, what kind of benefits he could bring to them. 
And when these covenants would be ratified in the future, they would be brought to date with what the king had done for them lately. In the law of Moses, Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's establishing his covenant with the children of Israel based on the fact that he is the Lord, he is the sovereign, he's the giver of the covenant, and he's faithful. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. They could trust him. They have good reason to enter this covenant with him because of what he had done for them in the past. Whenever this covenant was renewed, this part was brought up to date, reminding them that they're still serving the same God. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, throughout the Old Testament, there's this abiding sense of continuity. The God of Jacob was not a new God who replaced the God of Abraham. The God of Moses was not a new God who superseded or supplanted the God of Noah or of Adam. The entire Old Testament, in one sense, functions as a historical preamble or prologue to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the same sovereign creates the world, relates to Adam, renews the world with Noah, calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, relates to Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes of Israel, and is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Old Testament covenants are renewed, as in Joshua 24, the historical prologue is brought up to date. Joshua speaks to the people, not just about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Exodus, but also about the crossing of the Jordan River, driving out the Canaanites, and being established in the promised land. The Bible is the God of history. He is a personal God. His track record is important to New Testament faith. So when we come to the New Testament, and, and, and we go, and, and why should we enter into this, this new covenant? Why should we trust Jesus? But we could look at the preamble of the Old, Old Testament and see God's covenant faithfulness again and again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament and say, hey, he is faithful. He is worthy of my allegiance. The third part of the Hittite suzerain treaty consisted of promises and stipulations. A present-day example of this takes place in the workplace. An employee, you get hired, and you agree to certain conditions. You say, hey, you know what? You're going to pay me this, and I'll show up at these times, and I'll do this, this, and this for you. In this section, we have promises, and we have conditions. The Hittite suzerain said that his vassal, if you pay a head tax of so many shekels, I will guarantee you water wells, and I will protect them against all thieves, marauders, and invaders. God makes his promises to his people in every single covenant he makes. As when he said, you should be my people and I will be your God to Jeremiah. But every covenant also contains stipulations. I know we like to think of the new covenant not being about rules and regulations, but about relationship with the Lord. Well, I, I think that's a false dichotomy. Certainly Christianity isn't about rules alone, and it's centered on a personal relationship with Christ. However, that doesn't mean that we don't have stipulations to obey if we want to remain in the place of blessing. 
John 14, 23. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. Later, so if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says we need to keep his commandments. This implies that there are conditions or rules for us to follow. Never under the, the rule of Christ, the law of Christ. We need to obey Christ. We need to follow Christ's example. In the Old Testament, God said this, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the stipulation. Have no other gods before me. In Genesis 12, God promised many descendants to Abram. However, it was contingent upon a condition on Abraham. He had to get up and leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to Canaan. There was a, a, a stipulation, there was a responsibility on Abraham's part. One of the stipulations for a, a new covenant believer, somebody who's in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is they need to be a, a member of a new covenant body of believers who, who takes being a part of a new covenant body of believers seriously and, uh, and who preaches the word faithfully. And we need to come and we need to submit ourselves and, and become a part of that body and submit ourselves under the teaching of the Word of God from that body and from the elders' leadership in that body. And we need to do all that we can to support the mission and the ministry of that body. I know there's this antinomian attitude amongst believers today. We say things like we're under grace and not the law. But that's not entirely true. You see, we're part of a covenant community and under the lordship of Christ. And there cannot be a covenant without stipulations, conditions, and requirements. God has certain requirements of us being a part of his covenant community. Now let me say this. If we fail to, to meet these requirements when we, when we blow it, we don't lose our salvation. We don't get kicked out of the covenant community. We just go out of the place of blessing. Right? We're still a part of the community, but we're not. now we're no longer under the sprout of God's blessing. We're no longer in a place where God could bless us. Now we're in a place where he needs to chastise us, where he needs to correct us. He needs to bring discipline into our life. That's exactly what Psalm 89, David was talking about. It says in Psalm 89, it says, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break up my loving kindness for them, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David, his descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. We have responsibilities in this covenant. The fourth part of the treaty consisted of sanctions. This was the consequences if the stipulations weren't met. The king promised to do good if the stipulations were met, but promised wrath if they weren't. In Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Right? I, I talked about how they went up and 
half of them went up on Mount Ebal, and half on Mount Gerizim, and they read the law, the blessings and the cursings. And they would read a blessing, and people would agree. And then they would read a cursing, and the people would agree. And the idea was this, is if, if we follow the law, we know we're going to be blessed. If we don't follow the law, if we're disobedient to it, we know we're going to be cursed based on God's covenant faithfulness. And the fifth part of the covenant had to do with an oath or a sacred vow that established the covenant. After the giving of the law, there was a sacrifice in which Moses took half the blood and he put half of it on the altar, sprinkled it on the altar, and then he came and sprinkled the other half on the people. There was this ceremony where they took an oath, where the people on Sinai said, yes, we will obey these laws. We see that they're good. We see that God is faithful. And we pledge our allegiance to obey these laws as best we can. And then they had this ceremony with the blood, making an oath of this covenant. Again, I... I like what Sproul says here again. He says, God is a covenant keeper and we're covenant breakers. No one apart from Jesus has ever kept the covenant that God made with his people. One reason we like faith, or we lack faith, uh, we have crises of faith and are assailed by doubts about the future is that we project on God our own cavalier attitude towards the vows, oaths, and promises. We forget that God has never once broken a promise. When he swears a covenant, he keeps it forever. His promise fails not. By the way, when the, the covenant was finished, there would be two copies of it made, uh, one for the suzerain and one for the vassals. And these copies were kept in a safe and sacred place. For instance, if you were to get married, right, they, you would get married, there would be a marriage certificate that would be signed by the, the priest, the, the minister, and then he would take that to the courthouse and it would be sent to the state and it would be kept under lock and key, safe and secure, keeping records that that marriage actually happened, that it's a valid marriage. Well, when the law was given, it was written on two tablets. Now, there is those like John Calvin that say on the first tablet they had the first four laws, God's uh, man's dealing with God. And then on the second tablet it had the next six laws, God's or man's dealing with man. And that's one possibility. But I also think it's just as likely that each tablet had all ten laws on it. One copy was for God and one copy was for man. And then these tablets were taken and they were put in the Ark of the Covenant, which was then put in the holiest place in Israel, the Holy of Holies. And it was kept there as a reminder of the covenant that God had with man. It shows the importance of the covenant, that they would keep it in their most sacred and holy place. So letter A, let's fill in. Man owes God obedience and God promises blessedness and reward for said obedience. In the first part of the, the confession that we're looking at today, we see that there's this infinite gap between a holy God and fallen man. It, it, it's not by accident that the, this chapter on covenant falls right between the fall of man and Christ as a mediator. 
right? God wants to get us from the fall to Christ, right? And, and the way he's going to do it is through, through covenant, right? But there's this, this huge gap in the middle. Last week I was trying to illustrate this. Remember, it was 326 million trillion times 8 versus my 125. That was the gap between. It's a huge gap. And because of this infinite gap, man isn't able to give the obedience that God demands and deserves. So God condescends himself and he provides a covenant which gives stipulations which would allow a holy God to have a relationship that includes blessing with fallen man. And there's two of these covenants. There was the first covenant, which was the covenant of works. So if we let it be, fill in God's first covenant was a covenant of works. And God's first covenant was with Adam and Eve. It's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible, but it's implied. It was a covenant of works. Their responsibility was pretty simple. They only had one responsibility. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can do whatever you want. Just don't eat from this tree. And as long as they were faithful to obey that one promise, to be faithful with that one work God gave them, they would be blessed. They would remain in the place of blessing. Pretty simple, right? This title, uh, Covenant of Works, though, is a little bit misleading. As I stated earlier, any time God gives promises to us, it's pure blessing. It's pure grace. He, the Creator, isn't obligated to promise us anything. The fact that He does is an act of grace. So even the covenant of works is rooted in God's grace. It's an, an act of grace. But we know the story. Adam and Eve failed this covenant, right? They ate from the forbidden fruit, and, and they sinned. This, this covenant was broken. And so God was so gracious that he gave a second chance. And this time he instituted what's called the covenant of grace. So the covenant of works, and now he institutes the covenant of grace. So God's second covenant was of grace. And then for number one, the fall rendered man unable to achieve the first covenant, so God gave a second. So someone unable because of Adam and Eve's fall, they became corrupted. They, be, they all of a sudden had a sin nature. They couldn't keep the first covenant, the covenant of works, when they were perfect. Much less, how are they going to do it when they have a sin nature? If the perfect and personal obedience was the standard for the covenant of works, there was no way they could fulfill these demands. So God institutes another covenant. And this would be the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace means that God would fulfill the covenant for them. It was based on the promise, right, that, that God would defeat the serpent. God would defeat the enemy. In Genesis 3.15, right, after the fall, God comes to Adam and Eve, and he's looking for them, remember, and they're hiding from God. They're ashamed of their nakedness, and then God finds them. And, and he's like, hey, who told you you were naked? He's like, did you eat from the tree? And then he pronounces curses on Satan, on the man, and the woman. But then he talks about how he was going to reverse that curse. In Genesis 3.15, we have what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first gospel. 
It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And it was believing in this promise that grafted you in to Christ's fulfillment of the first covenant. Now, instead of perfect obedience to God's law, the requirement was to believe in a substitute or redeemer that would defeat the enemy that gained victory in the fall of Adam and Eve. From the very issuing of this covenant, right after the first sin, any and everyone who's been saved has been saved through the covenant of grace. They have been saved by believing in Jesus. And from these believers, God is building a covenant community that includes both Jews and Gentiles. So God said, you know what? You can't fulfill the covenant of works, so I'm going to allow somebody else to fulfill it for you. I'm going to allow the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And by you believing in this, by you trusting in this, I'm going to grant his works to you, is the idea. You know, the, we tend to think that the Old Testament had one way of salvation and the New Testament had a different way. In the Old Testament, we tend to think people were saved by keeping the law, right? By being faithful with the law of Moses. And in the New Testament, we tend to think people are saved by believing and trusting in Jesus. Yeah, that the woman, the seed of the woman, who's Jesus, is going to destroy the serpent. And it's by believing in that promise in the Old Testament that people were accredited the work of the seed of the woman of Christ for their works. But this idea that, that the Old Testament saints were saved by obeying the law and were saved by believing in Jesus is really bad theology, and it brings a great discontinuity to the story of redemption. People have always been saved by believing in Jesus. Old Testament, they were saved, I'd like to say, by credit. And we, in the New Testament, are saved by debit. Right? Jesus makes the payment for both people on both sides of the cross. And people on both sides of the cross receive their riches by faith in Jesus. So it's Jesus that paid for it in the Old Testament. It's Jesus that paid for it in the New. They just accessed it by credit. It would be paid for in the future. And we access it by debit. It was paid in the past. But for number two, fill this in. The second covenant does not annul the first, but makes provision for a substitute. So from the word substitute. You see, we tend to think that the first covenant failed, so God did away with it altogether. And he just came up with a new plan. He said, you know what, this covenant of works didn't work, so you know what, let's do the covenant of grace instead. But this is wrong thinking. Yes, Adam and Eve failed the first covenant, but the requirements for that covenant are still valid. When God gave the covenant of grace, he made a way for the first covenant to be fulfilled by a substitute. He would become that substitute and fulfill that covenant on our behalf. If people on either side of the cross believed this substitute work would be accredited to them. You know, it, it might be surprising to you guys, but the Bible's pretty clear on this, that we're going to be judged by our works. All people are going to be judged by their works. And 
in First Peter. Well, we're we're saved by our faith, but we're going to be judged by our works. Yes, First Peter one seventeen. Yeah, you're correct. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear and trembling during the time of your stay on earth. Romans two six says, "Who will render each person according to his deeds?" Colossians three twenty five. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, Joe, we're saved by grace, not works. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we're going to be judged by our works. When we think of the gospel, we tend to think of the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And that's a big part of it. We need to trust in his death and his work on the cross and his resurrection and our uh, and we'll be saved. Uh, this is true, but it's incomplete. You see, Jesus also had to live an absolutely perfect life. Jesus had to fulfill the law perfectly so that he could be that substitute, and then we can be imputed with his righteousness. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We don't tend to think of it this way, but the four first books of our New Testament are actually a part of the Old Testament. When Jesus was walking around on earth, it was still under the Old Covenant. It was still the Old Testament. And it was still under the law. And he subjected himself to the law of Moses, and he exhibited personal and perfect obedience to it. He 100% fulfilled that law. Remember, he would ask the Pharisees things like, which one of you can convict me of sin? And not one of them. They're not one of his enemies. He could, could point to anything. <laughs> they couldn't say anything that he had done wrong. They would try to and contradict each other and not even be able to get that right. That's because Jesus was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. As Pastor Bob was talking about on Sunday, that Jesus was able to ascend to the Father because he was perfect. That was the standard. Remember, he said in, in John 16, talking about the Holy Spirit, that when the Spirit comes, it will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, because they didn't believe in me. And, ju- and righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. And in judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And he's able to ascend to the Father. And it's going to judge the world in righteousness, because he is the righteous standard to be able to go into God's presence. God is a consuming fire. He dwells in inapproachable light. Any semblance of sin that goes in his presence will be devoured. It will be consumed. That's why when Moses asked God, he said, Hey, Yahweh, you show me your face. Show me your glory. God said, No, I can't. You'll die. you, you, You can't see all that I am right now. But Jesus was able to go into God's presence because he was perfect. He truly kept the law of works. You see, this this covenant of works still needed to be obeyed. God doesn't change. That covenant was still valid. It was God's standard. You see, but the covenant of grace made a way for Christ to fulfill those requirements for us. 
and see no more baptized into Christ. His works are imputed to us, and our works are imputed to him. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's like there was a trade that went on. Our works for his, our righteousness for his. You know, God's standard is still perfect obedience. And sinners are going to be judged by that standard. They're going to be judged by their works. The question is, is whose works do you want to be stand or judged by? Whose works do you want to stand in? Do you want to stand in your own works? Or do you want to stand in Christ's works? Do you want God to judge you on the basis of your works? Or do you want God to judge you on the basis of Jesus' works? That's, that's the real question. That's the ultimatum. And we read this in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. The scariest scene in the whole Bible. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat up upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no one was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead, which were in it, and death and Hades gave up their dead, which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So those that are in Christ, those that are a part of the second covenant, their names are in the book of life. And that's what they get judged by. But the people that say, hey, you know what? I want to be judged by my works. I think I'm a good person. I think that's what's going to get me into heaven. God's going to be like, all right, that's what I'll judge you by. See, God's so gracious. He, he gives people what they want. Every other religion in the world, everybody that you talk to when you go to street evangelism, they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. That's the standard that they want to be judged by. And God's going to be like, okay, that's what I'll judge you by. That's what you're counting on. That's what you want. That's what I'll give you. But it's never going to be enough because the standard is Jesus. And Romans 3 says that their mouth is going to be shut because God's just going to replay their deeds before them. And they're going to see, oh, that was wrong, that was wrong. Well, I haven't got much to say about that. And then they're going to be sent to the lake of fire. And as they turn around to go into the lake of fire, there's going to be hundreds and millions, if not billions, of saints standing up and cheering with the most enthusiasm that they've ever cheered with because of God's holy judgment, holy justice for sending that sinner to the lake of fire. That's going to be the last thing that person hears before entering the eternal torment is the sound of the redeemed praising God for perfect justice and sending them to the place that they deserve because they counted on their own works instead of Jesus' works. But God is so gracious. He's offering everybody that gift saying, hey, what do you want? Do you want to be judged by your works or do you want to be judged by Jesus' works? Point number three. All other covenants give further revelation of the blessings and promises of the first. So fill in the word revelation. Throughout the Bible, there's two main theological systems or overarching 
ways of looking at the scripture. The first one's called covenant theology, and this stresses these two covenants that we've been talking about, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And all of redemptive history, uh, according to covenant theology, is seen through this lens. In this system, there is only one people of God going throughout the entire Bible. And this system doesn't allow for distinctions like Israel and the church. It's, it's just one people of God. And God has one covenant, one purpose going through the entire Bible. The other system is called dispensationalism. And this system was made popular by the Schofield Bible. Um, especially here in America, the Schofield Bible was published and distributed and so that theology got propagated. Um, but the Schofield, uh, he looked at the covenants in the Bible and he designated seven distinct periods and stated that God dealt differently with people in each of these seven periods. For instance, he talked about uh, the dispensation of innocence. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. Then the dispensation of conscience. That was uh, when they got kicked out of the garden. They were you know, be judged in that by their conscience. And then after the, the deluge, after the flood, it was the dispensation of human government. And then after God's covenant with Abraham, it was the dispensation of promise. And then after the covenant with uh, Moses, the Mosaic covenant there on Sinai, it was the covenant or the dispensation of law. And then once the new covenant was uh, inaugurated by Jesus there at the Last Supper before his death, was the covenant of grace. And we're awaiting the covenant or the dispensation of kingdom, which will be the millennial kingdom after Jesus returns. Now the problem with this thinking, or dispensational thinking, is there's no consistency. You see, this dispensational thinking, we have no consistency through the biblical narrative. In each one of these dispensations, people tend to think that God is different. And the way that people, uh, it, dispensation means that there was different dispensations, different uh, times of trial throughout the Bible. The Bible could be broken into different periods of time. And in each one of these periods, God dealt differently with people. He related to them differently. And some people take it so far as they say that people would get saved differently during these dispensations and things like that. And again, the problem is that there's no consistency. We, we have things like people are getting saved in a different way in the New Testament than in the Old. So which one is it? Is it covenant theology or dispensationalism? My answer is yes. Both are true. Right? We want to believe in the covenants, but we also want to believe in the dispensations. Right? There's only two covenants that could bring salvation. We talked about the first one's impossible because all of us have a fallen nature and none of us are going to perfectly fulfill God's law. So really there's one covenant that could bring salvation, the covenant of grace. However, the covenant of grace has been administered differently throughout the different dispensations. For instance, worship looked different under the law of Moses as it does now in the church age. 
This is why we don't have a priesthood. We don't have animal sacrifices. We don't celebrate Yom Kippur. These things were mere types and shadows that were to help the children of Israel place their faith in Christ, who is the substance of these things. It's like in the Old Testament, God gave them object lessons for their faith. There were these rituals for them to perform to help them see their need for Christ and for them to be able to explain who Christ is. Because each part of their worship, as we're studying on Wednesday nights, it it pointed to Jesus. It was all symbolic of Jesus. It, it, It all had to do with Jesus throughout the Old Testament. No one was saved by these rituals. No one was saved because they brought a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement or on Passover or that they uh, did any of these things. Even Abraham was saved by faith, the Bible says. Romans 4, 1 through 3, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. This is right smack dab in the middle of Paul's thesis on justification, on how to get right with God. And he goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the faith, the beginning of the Jewish people, and says, look, it's not about the law or performing some kind of works. Even Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And that is the same way that everybody has been saved throughout all of redemptive history. So what about the other covenants I shared earlier? The covenants of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jeremiah. These were all expanding on the covenant of grace. Throughout redemptive history, God has been progressively revealing himself in his plan for redemption. He has done this through the covenants. With each covenant, we get more and more of the plan. We get more promises. We get more blessings until we get to the greatest of the covenants, the new covenant. Or will we get the ultimate blessing where God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my law on your heart and I'm going to cause you to walk in them. What he's going to will and to work in us to be able to perform what he wants to ensure that we never go completely astray, to make sure that we never have to go into exile again, to make sure that he builds his church. Lastly, letter D. The death of a testator bequeaths an inheritance. So throwing testator an inheritance. And when people die, right, they usually have an executor of their estate. Right? They, 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 they write a, a last will and testament. And when they pass away, when the, the testator, the one who wrote the will and testament, dies, that last will and testament comes into effect. And the executive of the estate or that will go through and make sure that those wills, his wishes, are carried out. Well, our Bible is broken up into two testaments, the Old and the New Testament. And testament is really just another word for covenant. So this testament is used like a last will and testament. Hebrews 9.15 in the King James says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of a new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption 
of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, that they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So when the testator dies, there's an inheritance. In John 14, Jesus, we studied this probably about a year ago, right? Going through the Gospel of John. John 14, Jesus is spending his last night alive with his disciples. He knows he's going to die the next day. And in a sense, he's giving them his last will and testament. That's what the upper room discourse can be seen as. And it's fascinating some of the things that he promises that his disciples will inherit. For instance, in John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Here Jesus is promising an inheritance, or a room in his Father's house. John 14, 16 through 18, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So here Jesus is promising his continual presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is going to give us power and knowledge and peace. It's going to empower us to be able to do what God has called us to do. Lastly, in John 14, 27, he says, My peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Here Jesus leaves us his peace, but not peace like the world has. Not a peace for worldly conflict. That's not lasting peace. There's always going to be conflicts. You, you might end one worldly conflict and before long, another one's going to start right back up. It's not a continual lasting peace. But Jesus offers us a peace unlike the world. He offers us peace with God. In Romans 5, right, right at the end, right at the conclusion of Paul's thesis on justification, he says this, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our society doesn't really value peace with God because it doesn't see anyone as being in conflict with God. Our culture thinks that God loves everyone and everything's all fine and dandy, but that's not true. We talked about last week how unbelievers, people were born in a natural state of being under God's wrath, that God's wrath is being poured out on the sons of disobedience constantly, that, that the non-believer is at enmity with God. They're hostile to God. They're at war with God. And Jesus is going to die as the testator, and he's going to bequeath peace with God. He's going to settle that now and give us peace, eternal peace, shalom with God. What greater thing could he give? So Jesus gives us peace with God. He promises us a <laughs> forever house with him in his father's house. And in between, he gives us his spirit, where he's with us and he's empowering us. So what's the application of this? The application is we need to trust God's covenant. We need to trust that we're right with God based on what Jesus did. 
but we need to do our best to fulfill the demands of the covenant. We need to live to please him. But we also need to share this message that everyone's going to be judged. You could be judged by your works or you could be judged by Jesus' works. Whose works do you want to be standing in when you want to stand before a holy God? Do you want to stand in your works or do you want to stand in Jesus' works? That's what we need to be telling people. That Jesus' works are available to them. All they need to do is repent and believe. Amen? Let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for tonight. I thank you for your covenant. I thank you that you are a faithful God, and we could trust that you will be faithful with your promises. There hasn't been one promise that you've ever given that you failed to bring to fruition. Lord, and I thank you that we know that we're going to be with you for all of eternity based on the promise that you've made us. Lord, I thank you that you died for us and you left us with these amazing inheritances, that, that we have that future home paid for with you in, in paradise, that we have your spirit with us now, protecting us and keeping us and empowering us and working through us and conforming us to your image and, and doing all that your spirit does. And I thank you that you've given us peace, peace with God, that your, your wrath against us has been settled by your blood. We thank you for that. We love you, Lord. I, I thank you for everybody here. I thank you for what you're doing in our lives, Lord. I ask a, a blessing on those that aren't here. I ask that you bring them back to us next week, Lord, and that we could live to, to exalt you in the meantime. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.